0: Well, welcome again to uh, Ecclesia. If you have uh, a few um, new faces, um, just to, to kind of give you a heads up, we're, in, we're just last week started a new series in James and um, under the title of Bonified Faith. What it is to be a genuine Christian, the book of James is one of those practical books Um, some likens to um, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's practical help on how to live, practical ways of assessing um, how the gospel is appropriated in your life and are you successful in appropriating your life. And so it's a helpful book, an incredibly helpful book. We're in the second session and today's message is, is Bonafide Faith, Is steadfast. Is steadfast. Let's pray before we touch on anything. Father, thank you for bringing us here today, this point, Lord. Father, thank you that whoever we are, whatever is going on in our life right now, Lord, we know that you, your Spirit, has spoken, will speak, Lord, and is speaking now into our lives and we we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord God, it's not just merely the reading of your word but the active engagement of the spirit in our hearts, Lord, that helps us to understand it and appropriate it into our lives. Help us all, Lord, and myself included, Lord, as I take us through James today, Lord, that we will be able to comprehend what it is you will have to say to us right now. Lord, help us to look deep, Lord. Help us to self-assess. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are you in life right now? And I ask that genuinely, I mean, not that you should all respond right now, but where are you in life right now? Are you, uh, has life been pretty good? I mean, you know, no drama, the last few weeks, last few months, last few hours. This sermon is for you, to put you on alert about what lies ahead. Are you going through terrible times right now? Is as the the, the term goes, is all hell breaking loose? Are there major crises in your life? Are you struggling? This sermon is for you, to encourage you. Are you feeling relief right now? Having just had a trying time? A very difficult time. Though the pain seems to be fading, it still feels quite fresh. But yet you know the worst is over. This sermon is also for you to help you reevaluate how you did in that time. If you have actually gained anything from that time. Last week we were talking about trials and we are continuing that same theme in James where James now takes that a step further. Last week we looked at the external dimensions of trials, in a sense the part which God is sovereign over. The external aspects of trials is circumstances, difficult relationships, bereavements, health issues, financial crisis, tragic events, of all kinds. These are external aspects, and they are called trials. And God allows them because they're helpful. And it's the state of the world in which we live in, where the free will of people means that certain things happen and death reigns. But we now move to the internal battle. So there's all these things happening outside of us, but then there are issues that now, at the same time, are working against us, it seems, internally. And this is the part where, as you will see through our text, James is saying that God is not sovereign over. The act of the will is what we are actually doing how we are responding to the trials. And this is what we call temptations. So the internal struggle is not a denial of God's sovereignty. It's just a a reiteration, a, a restating of the fact that God has not made us into robots. That way, we just do not respond because he's making the inputs and making us do whatever he wants. This is the part where we have our responsibility. And this is what James wants to highlight. So we are moving from the external issues to the internal battles, the temptations. Let's read through the text. It's a short one. And um, if we can put that up, for those of you who don't have a Bible, it'll be good to follow. But even better, it'll be good to hear. Blesses the man who remains. Sorry, I'm reading from the ESV as well. So, just in case you go, oh, it's not the exact same wordings, it's the ESV I'm reading from. So, from James 1, verse 12 to 18. That would be helpful as well, wouldn't it? Okay, if you're there, I'm going to read. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So there's our text. So what it mean? I'm going to walk us through, verse by verse, if that's helpful, and maybe gain a bit of insight into what this internal struggle looks like. My first thing is that I think that sometimes we misunderstand the way the term blessed is We can misunderstand how blessed is supposed to apply to our lives. What I think we tend to take is the general meaning of being blessed and make that basically the general state of what it is to be a Christian. And I think we are wrong if we do so. You know, we, we, it's common for us to all cry and say, man, I'm blessed. Even when our life is, is, going, is, is not going great. It's a way of perking us up. And What I don't want to deny is the fact that being blessed, as in God has saved me, he has done a work in me, I know that I have been appointed uh, to be redeemed in some future aspect, is, is a part of what it means to be blessed. God has truly blessed me. But James is not talking about blessing in that sense. He is talking about the blessed life being a person who is living in obedience to God. Psalms 1, 1 to 2 is incredibly helpful here. Listen to this. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Reading that, We might say that we are blessed in the general sense, in the first instance of how I said what it means to be blessed. We might all say, yeah, I'm blessed. God has really done a work in my life. I know that I have been saved. But how often when we are asked, are we blessed in this second sense, can we genuinely put our hands up and say, yeah, that's me. I'm the Psalms one man. I'm the Psalms one woman. I'm walking. I'm not sitting in amongst people who I shouldn't be sitting with and enjoying their jokes. I'm not standing with sinners, endorsing them and making them feel comfortable with their life. I'm reading my Bible regularly and and meditating on it. It's what motivates me. Blessed in that sense is not necessarily the same Way in which we would say, I am actually living the blessed life. It's a very different meaning. The blessed life is a life that pleases the Father, a life that's in obedience. The promise of reward here, as well, in this verse 12, Sam, if you put that up for us, there's a promise of a reward. And it's not the reward that we say, oh, yeah, it's the crown of life. It's the crown of life that we receive at the end of life. I think that would be wrong as well. James is speaking into our present situation. Another verse, again, looking at Paul, um, this time in 1 Corinthians 9, 17 to 18. Please write, um, put that down if you are taking notes. But he says this. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So what's he saying there? I think James, along with Paul, Is saying that what they call the reward is the outcome of a blessed life. In that sense, obedience is its own reward. It's not a denial of the reward in the new heaven and the new earth. It's just basically saying that the reward, the crown of life, is what you receive when you are living the blessed life. A little bit of further application here. How do we see this? I know it's not. we're probably not strangers to probably giving our own children rewards for doing the things that are right. It's possible that maybe a tidy room should be its own reward. Maybe doing the dishes is its own reward. But we need to think along these lines. Are we telling people that it's only worth doing these things if we receive something financially back? Obedience should be its own reward. The blessed life is its own reward. And this is what he's saying. Paul says if I do this, if I preach the gospel, that's a blessing. It's a blessing. So, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted wave? This is a big statement, isn't it? And we ought to commit it to our hearts. It should be a memory text, but not a memory text as in something that we kind of just put out there and say, oh yeah, I know. But something that we actually record in our heart and say, I know that God is good. We live in a time where it's you know, specifically in the UK, in this time where people are incredibly dismissive of God because of the evil they see around them. If God is good, why is there so much evil? It's, a, it's, it's the basic response. But how often is that statement said whilst they overlook their own evil? While they overlook the evil of companies? and the evil of governments and put the blame on God. Hmm. Proverbs 19.3 is quite helpful here. Let me just turn to that. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against God. You see how James and, and Proverbs marry up so well? How often are we challenged when we're going through difficult situations to say, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? How often do we lay down the gauntlet to him and say, If you're good, remove this pain now. When we do that, we are saying exactly the same things the atheists say. I can only believe in a good God. And we are no different to them. As Jesus says, we should not put God to the test. So, what's wrong with this statement? Firstly, who is the definer of good? Is that me, you? Are we the ethical and moral standard in which everything must be measured by? Is that what we mean? Because when we make that statement, that's exactly what we're implying. I know what ought to be done. Is God no longer the expert? The next problem I see here is the one of what I call a temporal one. Over time, things look different, don't they? And what we might see in a very early stage, and looks very evil, and looks very actually meaningless, is not necessarily how it will be if time is allowed to pass. Romans 8, 28, we, we I hope most of us know it. And it says, we know, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do we know this, though? It starts off, and we know. Paul is saying it like, this is what we all should know. The other thing I wanted to highlight in that particular verse is all things. What does all things mean? All things, doesn't it? The good, the bad, the senseless, the meaningless, and all the things that transcend our finite minds. All these things are God's, God can use. God is shaping us into the image of his son, and all these things are good for him to do so in our lives. But there's also another qualifying statement that, like back in verse 12 of James of of, of James 1, those who love God, it's a qualifier. For the atheists, yeah. I mean, they have no love for God. They will say that. But James and Paul both believe that if you love God, these things will be standard. You will believe in his goodness, period. You'll believe in his goodness. If there is no love for God, it won't work. Do you believe he's good? Let me illustrate this. I'm an artist. I'm an illustrator. But at the beginning of a piece of work, you'll probably see a bunch of lines, bits of scribbles, and it won't look like much. No doubt if I presented that to someone who was looking for a piece of work, they might say, that's, that's, that's rubbish, I can't use that. But give it a day, it'll look very different. The reality is, is that what's in, our, what, what's in my mind as an artist and what exists on the thing is I'm already seeing what's good. I'm already seeing what's about to happen. People around me don't see that. Let me extend this illustration to to cooking. My wife's a baker, and the former stages of baking, it might look a mess. The kitchen might even look a mess. but you put that mixture into some searing heat, a delicious cake (laughs) comes at the end and magically a tidy kitchen again. The searing heat is necessary for that cake to rise. How about a building in London now? We're no strangers to all all these buildings going up, aren't we? Lots of stuff going on. Houses that need to be built so that are affordable. <laughs> but when, walk to, when we walk past a building site, all we see is a big hole in the ground initially, isn't it? And loads of mud. And loads of people in high vis vests who are doing nothing. <laughs> but come a year later, or a year or so later, you see a a, a tower of steel and glass cutting across the London skyline. Give it time, and you'll see. But you might say, Richard, how do you reconcile the image of an architect, a baker, an artist to the devastating effects of illness or bereavement? I can only reply by saying, illness, bereavement, tragedies of that sort, we're not strangers to them. They're the normal part of life. None of us live forever. None of us even standing here in good health is really actually in 100% good health. There's always something wrong with us, but we just manage to function. None of us are like what we ought to be because the fallen world means that we always have something wrong. I know I have probably way too much fat in my arteries right now. It's not killing me right now. But it's a reality. In a fallen world, none of us are perfect. but this fallen world is not beyond God's ability to bring about his good. I'll take us to Paul again in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The next verse is important. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, do you really know who God is? Do you really know how mighty our God is? If you know an artist is good at his craft, then you will know that whatever comes at the end is going to be good. even if it's beyond your comp- comprehension now, to really look at it and say, I know what that finished picture is actually going to look like. Paul is saying, God is such a good artist, you cannot even comprehend what this masterpiece will look like. You cannot begin to fathom it. The same could be said of the cook and the builder as well, isn't it? We... When we know their reputation, it will cause us to overlook the earlier stages of something's development. It will cause us to overlook the messy kitchen, the slot that doesn't look much like an appetizing cake. We will forgive the mud and the hole which doesn't look like a building soaring across the sky we know that the finished product will look good. Verses 14 and 15, again present us another unit in James' development of his understanding of temptation. James corrects us initially by saying that a faulty assumption to believe that God is the author of our ills, our ill and and the evil that's going on in our lives and again squarely puts it rightly at our own feet as I said to you in Proverbs showed you in Proverbs 19.3 again our own actions sometimes and sometimes we need to look a little bit harder to see how things are our own fault don't we it looks like it's somebody else's, but reality is that when we look at it, it's really our fault. But how does this happen? We look past our own contributions, obviously. But it says our di- desires are ultimately what make trials tested. Our desires. So there's a point where you're going in and, and a testing time basically means there are, there's normally a way in which you can make it, Easier for yourself. Lift the burden off ourselves. And that's where the temptation comes. And it comes from our own desires. Our desire for comfort, our desire for power. Our desire for control. These desires basically become ways in which we want to bring the situation under our control. Our desires... Such as, our desires are not bad in and of themselves. Let's get that straight right now. But there is a thin line between a healthy desire and a bad desire. There's a thin line between a healthy appetite and gluttony. And you know something, it's probably the thin line between a a healthy appetite and gluttony is probably one grain of rice, isn't it, more than you really need. If you had to put it down like that, do I really need that extra bit? In whatever it is in life, do I really need that extra pound? Do I really need that, that, that extra friend? Our gluttony for more. There's a thin line between righteous anger and wrath. We will come to this later on in James' letter. And there is a thin line between love and lust. So what is a temptation? It is desire for a short-term gain that has long-term consequences. The nature of a trial is that it's a short-term setback with the potential for having long-term gain. James uses two illustrations in these verses to help us understand how temptation works. Most of us are probably unfamiliar with the whole nature of hunting and fishing, but this is what he uses, the analogy of hunting and fishing. To be a good hunter and to be a good fisher, you need a bait and a trap. The better the bait, the better the prey you're going to attract. But the trap has to be something that's concealed. The better it's concealed, the better it's tra- It's a trap. So hence, people put loads of foliage over things so that no one would see it. Or basically a fish, if you're under the water, will not see the net and the big box waiting for it at the end. But to be a good hunter, you basically need a bait in the trap. This is what he's saying. And so what is... So then we are finally... In, so we, are can't, we cannot see what we are finally ensnared by. We see a short-term gain. Look at that. That looks really great. I go for it. Bam! Long-term consequences. Now, I have no more power over my life. I am now in the hands of the hunter. The second illustration he uses is that of conception. He provides us with this whole idea of a short-term act. We can picture this as sexual intercourse if it's helpful. But this one moment leads to a seed growing that will eventually become something that torments us and doesn't leave our house for many, many years. (laughs) And costs us a fortune. Children are good, don't worry about it. But they do stay long sometimes. But this is what he's saying. He's showing us that basically there's something growing. We start off a chain reaction. And as, as um, it says in Galatians, isn't it? We sow to the wind and we reap the whirlwind. And this is what he's saying. Small things don't necessarily stay small for long. No doubt we've all been in a situation where we said, you know what, wow, if I had nipped that in the bud early on, I wouldn't be having this heartache right now. I think we all can identify with that. The potential blind spot for us is to misinterpret errant desires as genuine ones. Therefore, our sins are concealed as legitimate parts of our personality. Hence, we, 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 we live in a world where, where we can easily do away with the whole idea of sin. I mean, you know, it's not as bad as... A, I mean, we say things like, it's not as bad as it looks. You know, we've created things like white lies. It's just a little something on the side. These ways, These ways in which we conceal and we justify our gluttony, our want for more, by smoothing it over. I mean, how many d- diets have failed because we believe it is beyond our natural abilities, or our natural requirements? I mean, this is, we, we look and we say, this is, this is ridiculous, no one can live like this. <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I was watching one of these diet shows, and I, I, I have to admit, looking at what these guys do, I said, man, I couldn't live on that. And, but it's true. We can easily pass over something that's helpful by saying, no, that's that's not normal. That's that's what what really dedicated people, people who are um, not quite right, can do. But how about lust? Masking as love. Do you really like them for who they are? Do they really have a great personality? (laughs) I'll let you be the judge on that one. The same can be said for wrath disguised as righteous anger. Gives us a genuine reason to refuse to forgive, doesn't it? Well, I can't forgive that, No. no. I'm in my righteous, my righteous anger. You know, I have a lot to say about wrath because it's so... I I, I marvel at how disproportionate it is. You know, a step on the foot will, you know, so easily lead to the annihilation of everybody that knows them. You know, and I... I, We laugh, but it's true. A cut up on the road can lead to, you know, that person should basically die, struggle. um, I don't care if his kids are, you know, cry, this. They should never cut somebody up, never even cut me up. And I, I, I laugh, but it's so painful to know that this is in me. And I know it's painful when you think about this being in you too. We should never conceal it and say it's okay. Reveal it for what it is. This is not right. Let's move on to 16 and 17. Do not be deceived. Is a, this is strong. James is pretty much at this point in the letter standing up and saying, do not be deceived by every th- What I've just told you, don't let it deceive you. You are the author of your own problems more often than not. Do not deceive yourself. You know, when it comes to desires, he has given us good and pure desires, hasn't he? As we've just been talking about, you know, biologically we have, we have appetites that remind us to keep our bodies, bodies nourished. Psychologically, we, we have an appetite for beauty and harmony so that we can enjoy the things God has put around us. Spiritually, we have an appetite for worship. So that we can give due credit to the person who deserves it. But we know all these appetites have the potential to be abused and go errant. The Creator God is our Father who is unalterably good. And He doesn't change. Here we we hear him referred to as Father, and the Father of light. This is a strong creation statement, isn't it? When we read back Genesis 1, he created the light as the first act. Let there be light. And he's the Father of good. And and, and, and James says that when when we leave Genesis 1, all we have is a statement of it is good. It is good. And with, with humanity, he says, it is very good. If we anchor our view of God, in particularly in Genesis one, then we come away with this whole idea that what James is saying here is true. He is the Father of lights. He has given us good things. He has given us good desires. He has given us good things. He is not changeable in that sense that the God we meet in Genesis 1 is still the same God. There is no Old Testament God and no New Testament God. Oh, he's very angry there. But now he's very good because now he's got a son. So the child has, has lightened his mood. People think I've lightened my mood because I've got a child. But... There will be a false assumption. (laughs) I am not God. God is not being perfected by by having Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son, so therefore he was already there. We just come through a series of John. John John says that the eternal son was there at the beginning and is actually creator of the universe. So it's not like the Old Testament God lightened once the son was born. So let's remove any of these distinctions that, well, I can't read the Old Testament because that's oh grizzly. You can't read Genesis one and make everything that happens after it a disparity with God's character. He has made it good. And he is unalterable in the fact that he is good. Let's come to our final verse, verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, this is another Genesis kind of an allusion here. He's, James finishes this section by making appeal to his audience that they should, that, that they should be, that they'd be reminded of their privileged position. The term first fruits" in Jewish culture, again, you know, alluding to the fact that he has titled this to the twelve tribes that are dispersed in, throughout the world. That to a Jew, when a Jew heard the first fruits, he would think of the best. This goes back to the sacrificial code, where every person was required to bring their first fruits to God, and the first fruits represented their best. And often it meant the actual first, like the first um, calf or the first um, kid that came from a goat or the first lamb. And even your first child. Offer your best to God. James now appeals to them and says that you are God's best. But what does this mean? I think there's three ways you can interpret this it could mean humanity as a whole is he saying that humanity is God's first fruit you know as I said at the end of creating Adam and Eve he said this is good it's very good or is this the nation of Israel were they the first fruits the first name the first the first people that God put his name over or is it the church comprising both Gentiles and Jews? I believe the first idea of it being humanity is, ru- is ruled out simply because they are born of the truth. And one of the things we realize about the world we live in, not everybody follows the truth. And so I think verse 18, its first section, disqualifies the interpretation that this is the whole of humanity. the second one of israel is a bit more attractive but does james hold that the jews nationally are still the first fruit they're still the best because not all of them are obedient this is what paul says again in his letter to the romans he says they are israelites and to them belong the adoption this is reading from chapter 4 in chapter 9 sorry verse 4 Israel is blessed, but not necessarily all Israel is Israel. That they are God. Not all Israel are God's quote-unquote chosen people. So I come to my third one, and I believe this one fits a bit better. It must say that the dispersion is not bad, because obviously there were believing Jews at this time. But it, even, it, but it holds, however... To the fact that it means it does it definitely includes both Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe, who have been adopted and are chosen as God's people. But what does final appeal mean? It means that those who are born both physically and spiritually are God's best. if that is you today, you are God's best. You are his first fruits. A city set on a hill, a light to the nations, a light to our community, a light to our families. We should represent people who do not buckle at least easily but do not buckle under the pressure of trials and temptations God has nothing better to use than you you are the first fruits there's no point you looking to your neighbor or looking to somebody else, some kind of Mother Teresa character that you, you feel, well, they're, they're, they're an example of God's best. This is great, you know, don't look at me, I'm a, still struggling. God's not finished with me yet, type of mentality. I came across this proverb years ago when we went through it in um, our weekly meeting. I, 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 I found it tough, but I think that it's in the Bible because it ought to be there. And I want it to be an encouragement, especially if you're going through a hard time right now. And hopefully if you're, you will remember it when you are going through a hard time. It's Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We live in that kind of age where we want to reward any kind of effort. You know, I, I, I was a big P guy, and you know, I would never, I would, I, you know, I wouldn't want somebody who barely showed up for P to get a reward the same as that, who would always be there and put every effort in, because you don't, because you're, you're a winner too. No, you're not. <laughs> you never showed up. <laughs> but we live in that kind of age where we want to, we want everybody to be the same. And though we are all equal as, as human beings, we are not all equal in ability. Proverbs twenty four ten reminds us that if you fail, you failed. I want you to. Be, I really want us to think about that because, like I said, I struggled. This is this is the first time I've mentioned it since I dealt with it years ago. There's no point in saying I'm still a winner. You're not. I'll get it next time. Today is the day of your trial. If it's today, do not fail. Bonafide faith is steadfast. If you are not standing in the midst of tough times, if you are given into temptations, you are not bonafide in your faith. That's the statement. This is what James is saying. It's practical. And the problems with our quote-unquote age is that we are no longer practical. You are God's best if you're a believer. You are the light that he is using to tell the world he is alive and well in his people. Let's end with that. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.